0: This is The Guardian.
1: Hi, this is Guardian Australia Reads. I'm Jane Lee. Every week we pick some of The Guardian's best stories and then we read them aloud for you. This week we're revisiting a few of our most popular reads since we began the podcast. This first story is one straight out of a novel. It's got all the charms a London black cab, a Maharaja, and a lion who learnt to wipe his face on a flannel after eating.
2: He was, London Zoo said, one of the zoo's politest pets. Sing the lion arrived in a black cab and padded in through the front door on a lead. Thoroughly house-trained, he would wipe his face with a flannel when he finished eating and purr when tickled. How a rare Asiatic lion came to be standing at the Regent's Park gates of the zoo under the calm control of a ten-year-old boy is a story from the age of empire, of Indian nationalists and Italian fascists, of steamships and stately homes, and of a little boy's wish come true. Francis Rushbrook Williams, now 97, still remembers the summer as a boy when his lion came to stay. I used to play with him in the house and in the greenhouse. I would go along on all fours and he would go bop boop, 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 and I would do the same. He was gentle with his paws. We used to play with each other and we would pat each other. He was just like a pussycat. That glorious, remarkable summer has, in the more than eight decades since, become family lore— chronicled now by his Sydney-based granddaughter, Victoria Markinlay, in a children's book, The Lion Who Came to Stay. As a child, Francis was lonely at boarding school. His separation was an unremarkable state of affairs for the age, but he found the long absences from his parents and home especially acute, exacerbated by his distance from both. His father was Professor Lawrence Frederick Rushbrook-Williams, a commander of the British Empire and fellow of All Souls College at Oxford University. Francis wrote to him weekly from school, addressing his letters to British India, the land where he'd been born and where his father served as Eastern Services Director of the BBC. His father would later employ a struggling novelist by the name of Eric Blair, better known by his nom de plume, George Orwell. Professor Rushbrook Williams was a noted indefile and expert on the subcontinent. When an Indian lawyer called Mohandas K. Gandhi came to England, he would often stay at the Williams family home in Surrey. As a child, Francis remembers the future father of the nation of India for his meek handshake. Rushbrook Williams was also the personal assistant to the Maharaja Jam Sahib of Nawanagar. The Maharaja's father had been Ranjitsinji, almost universally acknowledged as the finest cricketer of his era and who had batted for England alongside W.G. Grace. In the summer of 1935, Rushbrook Williams made plans to visit England and he wrote to his young son asking him if he wanted a present brought from the subcontinent. Something alive, the boy wrote back. The request reached the ears of the Maharaja who initially offered an elephant. The Maharaja said, ''Oh, why don't you take my elephant? It can play the mouth organ.'' ''He would be perfect,'' McKinley says, though she believes her great-grandmother Frida briefly entertained the idea. I think she did consider it, but thought, ''Well, you know, what would I do with an elephant in London? What would it feed on? Where would I get sugarcane?'' The Maharaja then told the Rushbrook Williamses his lioness had just given birth to a litter of cubs. Why don't you come and choose a cub and take a lion home for Francis? So that's what she did. She wrote in her diary that she went and visited the litter and chose the one with the longest legs, McKinley says. It was really important to them, Frida and Lawrence, that the lion got home to the children. I think it was a way of them showing their affection fulfilling this dream of bringing something alive home, perhaps because they'd been apart so long. Given the name Singh, Sanskrit for lion, the two-week-old cub was promptly readied for passage to England. A carpenter built Singh a custom travelling crate with night and day compartments, and the family sailed on board a cruise liner, the Victoria, along with the Maharaja from Bombay on the 11th of April, 1935. Every day the lion, still just a handful of weeks old, was brought up on deck for exercise. Pretty much a kitten, he still terrified the dogs also on board. 1935 was a pivotal moment in world history. Across the Indian subcontinent, nationalist sentiment built. The Government of India Act, passed by the British Parliament, would become, ultimately, a significant step towards independence, and the birth of the world's largest ever democracy. Across Europe, meanwhile, democracy was faltering. The rising tide of fascism was unmistakable. The Victoria's first port of call was at the port of Aden. The ship had radioed ahead that more baby formula was needed on board. The lion wouldn't eat anything else, nor would he take the bottle he'd been given. Abolished it with one sweep of his paw, the professor reported, he would only drink from Frida's hands. "'I will never forget the feeling of his rough tongue lapping from my hands,' she would later write in her diary. The ship transited the Suez, the travelling party driving to Cairo for sightseeing, before reboarding at Port Said for Naples. From Naples, the travelling party, including the Maharaja, his various panjandrams and staff, drove to Rome, where they were invited to tea with the Prime Minister, Benito Mussolini, as well as members of the exiled Greek royal family. Word of this curious caravan, including a tame lion, preceded the travelling party as they made their way across Europe by train. They were stopped for calls at stately homes, granted audiences with local luminaries. The lion generally stayed in the bathroom of hotel suites. An American woman in an adjoining room of one hotel refused to leave it while the lion was still there. In Cannes, Frieda would wake early to walk the line before too many people were on the streets. It was early summer when Singh arrived in England. Rushbrook Williams hadn't engineered a shortcut through the quarantine obligations required in Britain at the time the family's ancestral home in Surrey had a conservatory and a high-walled brick fence. The lion would live there, sleeping in the glassed building and able to roam the rose garden at will. Now, from a distance of eight decades, Francis is still moved by the memories of his glorious summer with Singh, his something alive brought home from the land of his birth. Boy and Beast had a month together playing indoors and with the run of the grounds of the garden. Sing was just like a pussycat, Francis remembers, joyously energetic and playful. The cub had learned from Frida to wipe his face with a flannel, using his paws after eating. After every meal, he carefully wiped his milky mouth on a cloth, which we left beside his feeding bowl, Rushbrook Williams wrote. McKinley says Sing grew steadily stronger. He grew big paws, but he never hurt anyone. They played with him, dragging a towel along the ground that he loved to chase and pounce on. I think they played with him so much because they were worried that he would lose his lovely nature. Together, Francis and Singh practised roaring. My grandfather talked about Sing meowing a lot. He seemed to be practising his roar, and Francis would encourage him to keep trying to learn to roar properly. Even as he grew... Singh remained tame and deeply affectionate towards his family. But cubs become lions, and the milk-drinking kitten grew stronger each day. Singh had begun to eat and relish meat. The zoo sent a man down every week to see how he was getting on, Professor Rushbrook-Williams would later write. They soon insisted he must be put on a meat diet. It was interesting to see how he tore and took pieces of meat before swallowing them. By the end of the summer holidays the professor said we felt he would be too strong for us to manage to us he never showed teeth or claws but the love pats which he gave us in play were so heavy that we were often covered with bruises a conservatory was no place for a grown lion on the morning of 4th of june the family called a black cab History is silent on the driver's reaction to the feline passenger and drove to London Zoo. Singh walked in the main gates on a lead, borne by Francis. An extant letter from the secretary of the zoo records the transaction. I am directed to return you the thanks of the Zoological Society for your kind gift of the undermentioned animal, which has arrived safely and makes a welcome addition to our collection. One Indian lion cub, Singh, Felis Leo. Newspapers the next day bore the headlines, Lion walks in by front door. The lion arrives by taxi. "Sing, one of the zoo's politest pets. Frida told one paper's zoo correspondent that the children loved him. My eldest boy, who was at boarding school, even came home to see Singh, who had become very tame, We were so sorry that he has had to go to the zoo. The parting was an acute sorrow for Francis. His lion would go to the zoo to live, his parents would sail for the subcontinent, and he would return to the loneliness of boarding school. But Francis would regularly visit his former pet. He'd go to visit, McKinley says, and Singh obviously remembered him and would bound over to see Francis and would roll over and lie against the bars of his cage, The zookeepers would let Francis come right to the front and he would stroke him and tickle him just like he had done when he was at home. The children's visits would attract a crowd and their familiarity with the lion occasional confusion. Francis remembers one visit. We went to his cage and we tapped on the bars and we said to him, "'Sing, sing, sing!' And an old man standing next to us said, "'Well, don't be silly. Lions can't sing.' Singh would father four cubs to a lioness, Bessie. But he died, of causes unknown, in 1940. By that time, many animals had been moved from Regent's Park to Whipsnade to avoid the worst of the Blitz. The world was at war. Francis Rushbrook Williams soon would be too, dissembling about his age so he could sign up at 17. While Singh's summer in the conservatory was short, his story has lived on as an oft-repeated tale within the Rushbrook-Williams family, and now carried by his granddaughter out into the wider world. For me, it's wonderful that this story gets to live on, that my grandfather's memory can live on, McKinley says from her Sydney home. It's simply a lovely story, this almost unbelievable story about a bond between a boy and a lion, but it's a story, really, about fulfilment about a wish coming true. That
1: was The Lion in the London Black Cab, the remarkable story of Singh and the Boy Who Loved Him by Ben Doherty. The reader was Emily Elise. When we think of Pacific Islands, we think coconut palms and sweeping shorelines. But in this next story, we also hear about the bravery of Pacific Islanders in the face of catastrophe, like when climate change forces you to make the difficult decision to leave your ancestral homeland.
3: Francis Tony is buried on an island that is shrinking. The sea breaks on a shoreline that is now less than five metres away from his simple gravesite on Toroa Island in the Solomon Sea. But his son, Christopher Sese, says the family have no plans to move Tony's bones to a new gravesite. He says, My father will be like the captain of the Titanic. When Torowa Island goes down, he will go down with it. Toroa lies in the Saposa Islands group, south of Bougainville, in the east of Papua New Guinea. While the nearby Carteret Islands drew international attention a decade ago, with some saying residents have become the first climate refugees. There are a number of island groups around Papua New Guinea that are disappearing or becoming uninhabitable due to rising sea levels. Paramount Chief John Wesley, of Terotsian Island in the Supposes, points at a grassy area in front of the school building, explaining that during king tides, the entire field is covered in water. He says, Last time? The boats from town drove all the way in and were spinning around on top of the school field. In addition to being Paramount Chief, Wesley is a civil engineer. He has been trying his best to get the community involved in small projects around the island, such as building a seawall from old 10 kilogram rice bags filled with dead coral and shells to protect the land from rising waters. He has also put together proposals to get support from local national and international bodies, in an effort to secure land protection measurements. But he fears a move may be inevitable. The big challenge is our children, our future generations. I think if we decide to move to the mainland now, maybe our future would be much better. Local school teacher Arani Kaitov was born and raised on Tarotsian Island, and says she talks to her students about natural hazards and the impact climate change is having on their island home. I usually tell the kids that because the seas are wearing away the soil and our land is getting smaller, and because the population is growing, that in the future, we'll move to the mainland. Sea levels in the Western Pacific Ocean have been increasing at a rate two to three times the global average meaning there has been a net rise of 0.3 metres in the last 30 years. The most obvious impacts of rising sea levels are coastal erosion and flooding of low-lying land. But communities are affected long before their islands become submerged. Salt water seeps into groundwater, making it unfit for household use and leaving communities dependent on rainwater for drinking and meaning communities cannot grow crops. Bobby Soma was born on Toroa in 1962 and says he has noticed a huge change in both the environment around the island and the standard of living for the people in his community in his lifetime. He says, Before, we could plant bananas. There were some coconut trees and some breadfruit. We even had mangoes. But now, we can't plant anything here because the soil is no longer fertile. It is just Sand. Soma says there is no hope that the people on Toroa can remain and be self-sufficient. Even now, the islanders must rely on garden produce from the mainland to supplement their diets. Soma relocated to the mainland in 2014, but has made a special trip back to Toroa to show the impacts of the rising sea. He says, It's hard for us to move to the mainland, because Toroa is where our mothers lived and where they gave birth to us. It's hard for our new generation to move. Soma moved to the mainland to show his people that a new life was possible, despite the emotional challenges that come with leaving their birthplace. And there are some advantages. He is now able to grow his own food again. On the island, we had to spend money every day just for food, cocoa or whatever, But on the mainland, there is plenty of land. So I'm happy because it is a new start for me. Soma says developed countries should do more to support small islands like Bougainville and work with local governments to provide assistance to those, like him and his supposed community, who will have no choice soon but to find new land to relocate to. Many big industries in the big countries are making big projects and developing their country but they are just making things hard for us. For the past 12 years, Ursula Rakova has been helping relocate members of her community from the Catarat Islands, about 80 kilometres northeast of Bougainville, to the mainland. The remote circular atoll sits perched on top of a reef. Rakova estimates its highest elevation is only 1.2 metres above sea level. It's very, very low. If you put all the islands together five or six islands, they are very small. You basically can walk around the islands in less than an hour. It is a tiny footprint of land left on the Cataract Islands that makes life there unsustainable. She says, maybe the islands will remain, and maybe there will be trees, but in terms of sustaining our lives and feeding ourselves, that time has Gone. Responding to a call from elders in her community who were desperate for a solution, Rakova set up a local NGO called Tulele Pesa, which translates to Sailing in the Wind on Our Own, and which has been instrumental in relocating families from the Catarote Islands to the mainland. Ten families have now successfully been relocated to the village of tinputz with which her NGO built a relationship, and have made new homes on land provided to them by the Catholic Mission. She says, families are given a house, a water tank and one hectare of land where they can grow cocoa, coconut and also garden food. We have food crops like sweet potato, cassava, tapioca, bananas, greens and there are many other vegetables that we can grow. Although leaving their island home can come with challenges, Rukava says the standard of living for the families living in Tinputs has gone up hugely as the new location provides them not only with fertile land to grow food to eat, but the cocoa blocks provide a means of earning an income. Morris Carmen and his family were among the first to sign up for the relocation to Tinputs and agrees that the standard of living is much better on the mainland. I have a block of land with 300 cocoa trees and coconuts that I've planted too. I harvest about two bags from these trees and go and sell them. The little money that I get from this goes to my children's school fees and medical expenses. When they're sick, I give them a little bit of money so that they can go to hospital. Carmen says that he has left behind many friends and family members, all of whom he hasn't seen since he left over ten years ago. But his motivation for relocating was for the benefit of his children and their future. There won't be any island in the future from what I can see. The island will be gone. The sea will destroy the island. There are plenty of people too. Where will they live? It's hard to live there.
1: That was My Father Will Go Down Like the Captain of the Titanic, Life on the Pacific's Disappearing Islands by Galoline Fainu. The reader was Colin Smith. And last year, Guardian Australia produced a three-part series looking at the impact of climate change on islands in the Pacific region. It's called An Impossible Choice, and it's a beautiful yet heartbreaking listen. We'll link to it on the Guardian Australia Reads website. Coming back now to the inner city streets of Melbourne, where we drop into perhaps the last remaining video store. Before streaming services and on-demand, video stores were central to our Friday night movie watching. And even more important were the people behind the counter, the film buffs with an encyclopaedic knowledge of the
0: treasures on their shelves. The last DVD rental store in Melbourne sits in an unassuming wooden shopfront in Richmond between a trendy fish and chippery and a tapas bar. For the past 20 years, Picture search has been run by Derek Devroot, an eccentric man who wears his grey hair long, his clothes baggy and doesn't like interviews. He tells me as much in a voicemail that cuts out inexplicably 30 seconds in. Yeah, hi, it's Derek at the video store. It starts in a slow, bored drawl. Um, yeah, I just keep running out of time. Sorry about that. I mean, I hate being interviewed or what have you, but just come in any time and, uh... The recording stops. Swan Street has been subject to dramatic gentrification since DeVroot saw a sign in the window of a video store in 2000 reading all VHS $5. You can't do that, DeVroot decided. You can't close. They had a good video library. So he made the snap decision to buy every VHS in the shop, roughly for their on-sale price, and began renting the premises of Picture Search, which now holds more than 35,000 DVDs. He describes the store as it was then, as alt-cinema, and then pauses, as if displeased, with that description. I suppose with alt-cinema, you don't know you're into it when you are, he says, you just like movies. Before devoting his life to Picture Search... De Vroot did a range of odd jobs as a postie and later a bank clerk. Though he speaks about it nonchalantly, his family has a remarkable past. His father was a Dutch soldier who was imprisoned by the Germans in the Second World War before eventually escaping to Scandinavia. He subsequently fought for the Dutch in the brutal struggle against Indonesian independence forces before making it to Australia. It was here that De Vroot's father met his mother, who died giving birth to his younger sister. DeVroot grew up in Gisborne, Victoria, his sister in Ballarat. She was adopted by his mother's best friend but remained close to the family. When DeVroot arrived in Melbourne in the 1980s, he would go to the movies at least once a week to see foreign or arthouse films, believing that was kind of just what everyone else did. This was the cinematic era of the first Coen Brothers films, early Jim Jarmusch, Hal Hartley. Tenzin Casey Waters did work experience with DeVroot as a teenager and has visited Picture Search with her family since she was a child. It wasn't like other DVD stores, she says. It was like a little maze. When Casey Waters worked there, Devroot still used an old Windows desktop computer and a manual filing system, but knew every regular customer's number by heart and was an expert at remembering tastes. He's a character, she says. Very dry, very mild, very knowledgeable, but very generous. He wants you to get the most out of movies and connect. One time he recommended my parents' balls to the wall, Casey Waters says, They rendered it but accidentally left it there and went to the supermarket so he followed them in and from the other side of the aisle shouted, hey, you forgot balls to the wall. She says remarkably little has changed in the store. For decades, yellowing newspaper clippings have hung behind the till next to film and TV figurines and a big sign from the cult 90s film Clerks that reads in bold rainbow lettering, just because we serve you doesn't mean we like you. As for his own taste, DeVroot declines to name a favourite film, but thinks he has seen less than 20% of the thousands of movies he has on hand. Before the end of our conversation, a young man comes by and rents David Lynch's cult film, Mulholland Drive. DeVroot starts to muse, not so much to the man as to himself, about the film and Lynch's creative process, questioning if he understands the list of clues on the back of the DVD case. Devroot still seems indifferent to making a profit. When I go to leave, I attempt to buy a $50 record from him, clearly priced his for sale. He looks at it, a touch remorseful, and pauses. I guess you can buy it, he says eventually. I've listened to it once before, but I think I have two copies. It's okay. It's the records that have kept Picture Search going, as streaming and then the pandemic have made browsing for DVDs a decidedly niche experience. In the past two years, DVD rental stores have closed in Murrumbina, Frankston South and Sandringham. And that was it, Devroot says. They were the last video stores in Melbourne, apart from me. When I spent all the money we had left on making it a record store... It was kind of scary because, like, are we going to be able to pay the rent now? And we are, but I can tell that if it wasn't for selling the records, we wouldn't be. He has thought of moving picture search to the regions where rent is cheaper and DVD stores seem to last longer. But the landlord hasn't increased the rent yet, so he insists, we're going to continue to struggle here for five years yet, serving the movie customers who remain people looking for alternative films, those who avoid going online on principle, or families set in their ways who love the idea of a local. It's these regulars who say, man, if you close, there are things that we won't have access to. That was You
1: Can't Close, Melbourne's last video store determined to remain open by Caitlin Cassidy. The reader was Meredith Penman. You can see photos of the video store and Derek by going to the Guardian Australia Reads website. We'll link to the article in our show notes. That's it for today's Guardian Australia Reads. We'll post links to all of today's articles on our website. This episode was produced by Camilla Hannan, Daniel Simo, Alison Chan and me, Jane Lee. The executive producers are Gabrielle Jackson and Miles Martignoni. Next week, a whole new episode of Stories We Love To Share, so make sure you download and subscribe to the Guardian Australia Reads podcast. See